Just a quick word of warning. This podcast tells honest and raw stories from the Australian bushfires that may be triggering for some people. Please take care when listening to this podcast and stop if it makes you feel anxious or uncomfortable in any way. We recommend wearing headphones, especially if there are kids around. Catastrophic. Tales from the Aussie bushfires. My name is Pamela Cook. I'm an author and I live in the Illawarra region of New South Wales. Uh, I also have a house, a family holiday home, where my daughter has lived for the last five years in Little Forest, which is very, very close to Milton and was recently affected by the fires. It's been a pretty chaotic time over the last probably six weeks, I guess. I think it started before Christmas when my daughter phoned. She and her partner run a horse training business out of the property, you know, our family property at Milton. And at the time they had probably about six horses of their own and ours there, as well as horses that were being trained. Um, And they were advised by the bushfire brigade when they came up to the house that they should get all the horses out, get all the animals off the property, and that within a couple of weeks they're expecting the area to be hit very badly by fires. Um, the, the bushfire brigade came in and um, actually bulldozed a fair bit of bush close to the house, which was really interesting. It was pretty scrubby bush and, to be honest, we weren't that bothered and we were really happy that it was being done, you know, so the house would stay safe. But as my daughter said to me, the irony is if we had applied to council to clear that bush, we would have been denied um, approval. So... Um, Anyway, that that was cleared and the horses uh, were taken off the property. What that meant for them, of course, was uh, no income. So they're a young couple with a two-year-old child, um, you know, haven't got a lot of savings in the bank and his money that he earns from the horse training was their main source of income. So immediately they had no income coming in. Um, so then it was just a, a waiting game really uh, where, you know, we started to, they started to clear as much stuff from around the house as possible. Um, you know, my husband went down there to help them. We bought generators. We, you know, set the place up as much as we could. It's it's an old timber house. It's very, very close to the bush, even though it has some paddocks on it. And um, it's below an escarpment of, and and pretty much in the middle of the Morton National Park. So there followed, you know, a pretty few hair-raising weeks over the Christmas period where my daughter and her partner were coming and going. I actually had to, well, didn't have to, but I took their two-year-old for, you know, probably about 10 days. He was here with us because they were worried, of course, there's only one road in and one road out. So if they got stuck, they didn't want to have to deal with, you know, having to try and evacuate and have have him and, and be worrying about him. So he was here, had all their, their horses, their dogs, everything here, <laughs> chickens, chickens, cats, um, the whole thing, um, which was fine. But the biggest worry, of course, was if the fire arrived and they were there. So but what, it, what eventually happened was um, they went into town one morning to get some supplies as the fire threat, you know, became more and more imminent and they couldn't get back. The road was blocked. So... 
they waited at the end of the road and in that period they saw houses that were much closer to the highway, which was where they were waiting to try and get back, go up in flames. Uh, one of the, the men in that house, I'll probably get emotional now thinking about it, um, one of the men, you know, who had literally just left his house, turned around, saw in the review, review mirror his house going up in flames, um, you know, and they stood beside him while he, he sobbed, just had lost everything, animals, everything. Um, you know, and they were they were pretty traumatized by it too, even though it wasn't their house. But just to see your neighbours and you know your fellow human beings experiencing this. Um, so anyway, um, they couldn't get back to the house. <laughs> They'd actually left the dogs there because they were expecting, you know, just a shopping trip. The dogs were the only animals left there at that stage. On the cats, um, one of their dogs was tied up under the house because he kept running away. So. You know, it was a couple of days before we knew what had happened there. Um, they were really lucky that they were put up by, um, there was a holiday house in town that a friend of theirs lived next door to and because holiday makers couldn't get down the coast, the roads were blocked by this stage. Um, they were really lucky that the owner said, look, stay there. So they had a, they had a roof over their heads. Um, but what happened then, of course, was the communications were cut. There was no, There were no power lines. You know, power lines were down. They couldn't call us. We couldn't call them. Um, there was no FPOS machines. There was you couldn't get petrol. So if, even if they could have left, you know, they they couldn't get any petrol to leave. They were sort of trying to get supplies and food to feed. You know, at this stage they still um, they still had their son down there, and they were in town, and they um you know, we're waiting outside the supermarket. It was like something from a dystopian novel. It's just bizarre, waiting at the supermarket to be, you know, let in with someone with a torch leading them through the dark to try and get enough items to feed themselves um, for a few days. So anyway, that that threat um, died off and they were able to, they brought their son Jack up here uh, and then we were able to get back. And then over the next couple of weeks, um, probably happened they weren't locked out but but the roads were closed on and off for the next few weeks and um eventually uh on the horrible saturday um the fires did actually creep up right up to the house and at that stage they'd been advised by a neighbor who was a fireman himself not to be in the house so my husband had been down there with them putting out spot fires over that time that were, were creeping up to the house um, you know, and I remember talking to them on the phone and it was four o'clock in the afternoon and it was pitch black inside the house. There was, you couldn't see anything because of the, the smoke. Um, so anyway, that, that sort of happened and then that, that threat went and then it got to the, the Saturday and the, this Simon neighbour said, look, don't be here. The house is timber. It's, you know, it's just a waiting to go up basically. And a lot of the bush had been burnt by them, but there was still bush to burn. So. Um, they came up here, which I was really <laughs> grateful for. And, um, you know, we just sat around the TV. Of course, everybody was sweltering and the high temperatures and just sat around the TV. We were listening into the RFS radio, watching the news. We didn't know what had happened with the house. They'd managed to get most of their stuff out at this point. And, look, my attitude then was it's a house. If it goes, it goes, as long as you're all safe and you've got as much out as you can get out. Um and really, it was just the, the bravery of the neighbours 
and the firemen who, you know, four fire trucks ended up saving the house and um, everything around it was burnt, all the paddocks, gardens, trees, fences were gone. Um, but the house itself just stayed standing. <laughs> so it was it was a miracle really. And it was uh, because of the bravery of the people who got out there with the hoses and did it. You know, I mean, we'd made the decision not to be there um, and that's a decision, you know, that everybody had to make individually. But um, but it's it's had a long-term impact on them because they can't still can't run their business effectively out of the property. There's no fences there, you know. So, um, yeah, we're just sort of dealing with the, the aftermath now, going through the insurance process and, We've been a lot, lot luckier than most, or not most, but a lot of the people who lost their homes um, and lost lives and livestock. Um, but, you know, it's just you, you drive past houses on the road and it just reduced to rubble, you know, and, and all the bush. You know, I mean, we bought that house because it was such a beautiful part of the world, and it still is, but all of the bush right all the way down through the front of our place, right the way up to the Princess Highway, which is about, 12 kilometres is just gone. So, and of course, all the animals that live there, you know, they're still seen a wombat and apparently the local lyrebird's still there. But, um, you know, in terms of what would have been there, it's just been decimated. Once things have calmed down and things are starting to get back to normal, I can see looking back over that period how on edge they really were you know, and, and just the, the worry. I mean, these are two young people that have got literally, I mean, of course we, we've, you know, we fed them while they were here and we've been supporting them and helping them. We've still got all the, the other horses that they own and that we own here, um, you know, from the property and we've been helping them out as much as we can. But, I mean, no income. I mean, Amelia had started a, a part-time job at the local pub and um, just as a second income, you know, and, she couldn't work because the pub was closed, the roads were closed, um, and then there was nobody down there, of course, because, you know, all the local businesses have been so badly affected by the lack of tourism. This is the busiest time, you know, of the year, or January is the busiest time of the year for the South Coast, and um, there was just no nobody there. Um, I was down there this week, and their two-year-old, who's literally just starting to talk, I mean, learning new words by the day but um as soon as you call him on the phone or you know as soon as I walked in he walked over to the window and looked out and said smoky fire you know so it's just obviously that's been stuff that's been talked about so much for the last five or six weeks and fires he looks out the window saying fires fires you know and you just think wow it's it's had a huge impact of course mentally he doesn't know what it is but he's talking about but it made me really realise, wow, that's been our sole topic of conversation pretty much for the last, you know, probably six weeks. So, yeah, they're, they're getting back on their feet. Um, but it was interesting being in the town this week, so which was about three and a half weeks after, you know, the last lot of fires went through. And, and I've got pretty good friends down there who went through, you know, the fire going through their place three times, three or four times, and being there fighting the flames and, and finally saying, no, that's it, we've got to get out and literally being stuck in the car and having to get out and, you know, reverse the car and, and go back home not knowing if they were going to get out or not and luckily their house was saved. Um, you know, it's stories about people who had to leave their house and, 
and couldn't get their horses out, little miniature horses who had been so badly burnt um, and just now, you know, having to be nursed back to health by by other really amazing people in the community. And that's one thing I have really noticed is the um, the way the community has really pulled together, you know, people looking after each other. I think you, I think we, like a lot of Australians and definitely the government, um, have been pretty complacent over the last few decades um, about how damaging the drought and the undeniable, as far as I'm concerned, climate change has been um, and what it could lead to in the future. I mean, whole towns, you know, have been decimated, like literally burnt to the ground in the case of Cabago. Um, Mogo, part of that, that went horrendous. And, and you know, part of me thought, oh, Milton, Milton won't go up in flames. But then when I thought about it, I thought, well, it could. You know, there's, there would be nothing stopping those places are so beautiful and so green and, I mean, well, not that green, actually, prior, prior to the drought, but uh, prior to the fires. But um, you know what I mean? Like there was, it made me realise that where no one is safe, you know, that at any place at any time, um, really, we're all under threat and it's something that we all need to just, and the other thing too, as I said, was seeing my little grandson, you know, living through this and realising, it made me realise, wow, this is part of him, his growing up. This is going to be his life. You know, I didn't have to worry about this when I was a kid. I mean, yeah, okay, there's always been bushfires, like undeniably, but not to the extent of what we've just seen. And, you know, I mean, the fires have been raiding in the north of New South Wales as well for, for some time. I've got a friend who moved from the area where I live in the Illawarra, having sort of been through a few vague threats here, moved up to Tewantan in Queensland to the tropics, was evacuated a month after getting there because of the bushfire threat, like stuff that you would just never have heard of, you know, when I was a kid myself. So it's made me very frightened for the future, um, very frightened for the world my grandson's going to grow up in, actually. And... We really just need to do something about it. Well, I think, first of all, we've all got to just, as, as individuals and as human beings, accept that this is the reality of life. Um, we can't forget. We can't allow ourselves to forget what's just happened. Um, you know, it's very easy, I think, for us all to go back to our lives and think, oh, well, fires have been and done. That's not, I don't think that's the case. And, and I just wouldn't want to see people go through what I've seen my friends, my family go through and what we've all witnessed, you know, on the TV. It's just, it's, and, and to drive down through that beautiful, beautiful part of the world and to just see it, like it's like driving through a war zone. You know, we live in such a beautiful country and such a beautiful place and, and we're not valuing it. Um, I, I really think we just all have to make sure that, we are choosing people to represent us who are going to stand up for us and for our future and for the generations to come because it's not a joke and it's not going away and it's it's something we all, every single one of us, need to be conscious of, you know, going forward. And I believe a lot of people 
did have voted on that in the past election. Um, but now I think is the time we all really need to take it seriously and just more, much, much more seriously as the issue that is has to be acted on. We've just got to, we've got to do anything we can to, I doubt we'll ever reverse the damage that's been done to the environment through emissions. Um, but it, it's not a lost cause and we have so many natural alternatives that we could be using and, and investigating, um, you know, look to other parts of the world and, and get some expertise and bring those people in, consultants, all those sorts of things and just, you know, if other places in the world can do it, why can't we? You're listening to Catastrophic, a dual podcast and political protest project. Catastrophic tells the tales of the Australian bushfires and calls for all partisan political action around climate change. Each episode of Catastrophic features an Australian talking about their experience of living through the bushfire crisis, what their fears are now and for the future, and what they would like to see done about it on a government level. But it doesn't end when the episode of Catastrophic goes out. Politicians aren't paying attention to things like this. They're not listening to our stories. They are too easy to avoid and deny, or so it seems. So, we at Listen Up Podcasting are taking every story we gather, every episode we release of the Catastrophic Podcast, and we are putting them together into one big audio file and sending it to all the politicians every single week. The LNP, the ALP, the Greens, One Nation and the Independents, both state and federal. We will also be alerting the media organisations every single time a file goes out. That way, the police can't pretend these stories don't matter and that these demands for change don't exist. So what are the demands? What are we demanding on the catastrophic podcast from the government? Pretty simple, really. It's the same thing people have been protesting about and calling for over the past few years. One, no new coal, oil and gas projects including the Adani Mine and the Wallara 2 Coal Project. Two, 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030. Three, fund a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel workers and communities. Four, hand over land conservation management to First Nations Australians. Five, start preserving our water and treating it as a precious resource, not a sellable commodity. We all know that this Christmas, Australia lost over 10 million hectares of its country and well over a billion animals have died as a direct result. Parts of our country have been in drought for coming on to 10 years now and the Great Barrier Reef will not survive the warming of the waters. This is what climate change looks like. There's no denying it anymore. Denial is now a choice, not an option. This has all been predicted by scientists for more than 30 years. And we are now facing the consequences that they predicted. And they are scary. Scary enough for people to finally scream, stamp and protest in the streets for change around climate change. Catastrophic is just one of those protests. Let's see if our politicians are listening. Let's see if they care about any of your stories. Thank you for listening to and participating in the Catastrophic Podcast Project. 
If you or anyone you know has a story they would like to share from or about the Aussie bushfires, please instant message us via the Catastrophic Podcast Facebook page or email us at info at listenuppodcasting.com.au and we will get in touch with you and record your story. It may not be straight away. We are fielding a lot of stories at the moment, but every single one is important and we will get to all of them. In the meantime, our bushfire season hasn't ended yet. So my big message to you is please be safe. Look after each other, care for this planet, and do not stop fighting for action around climate change. This podcast was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world. Always was, always will be. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.